Welcome to the Presentation Boss Podcast. I'm Kate Norris. I'm Thomas Craft. And we're here to help you plan, design, and deliver your best presentation. Welcome to episode 51 of the Presentation Boss Podcast. Today we're doing a speech breakdown. Now the reason we do this is we know that one of the best ways to become a better presenter is to watch other people present and to think critically around what it is that works really well for them that we could use and to think about what maybe isn't working so great that you may not want to use. So what we're going to do is play a talk and pause it at any point that we feel like we have something to comment on. And we'll all learn together. Yeah. So today is Thomas's pick on a TED Talk. It's one that I've not seen before, so I'm going to be listening to it for the first time as well. Unless you really don't like it, in which case it wasn't. It it was somebody else's pick. (laughs) (laughs) So what do we got? So this is one I discovered on the TED Talks Daily podcast some time ago, and it's Ella Al-Shamahi with The Fascinating and Dangerous Places Scientists Aren't Exploring in Vancouver in April 2019. Let's do it. So um, I've got something um, that I'm slightly embarrassed to admit to. Um, at the age of 17, as a creationist, I decided to go to university to study evolution so that I could destroy it. <laughs> I failed. I failed so spectacularly that I'm now an evolutionary biologist. I have really mixed thoughts about her opening. I really like it. It opens with a little bit of a story. Yeah. She's 17, she's going to university, this is why, and this is what happened. Straight little quick story, great. What I didn't like was the feel of no confidence in that opening. She's standing on one leg and kind of teetering, it makes me feel like she's going to fall over, and starts with, so, um, I've got something to say, or whatever it was. I feel like she could have the same impact just by standing there solidly with a little bit of confidence and saying, I have a confession to make. Huh. Yeah, but I I just didn't like how she was kind of teetering on one leg. For me, that kind of worked for the mood, Mm. the the tone there. It was sort of like a little bit vulnerable, that little bit of like a confession. I don't know. That kind of worked for me. Yeah, okay. I think either way, though, we now know that she's an evolutionary biologist and we understand her credibility. Yeah. But I'm now an evolutionary biologist. So um, so I'm a paleoanthropologist, I'm a National Geographic explorer specialising in fossil hunting in caves in unstable, hostile and disputed territories. And we all know that if I was a guy and not a girl, that wouldn't be a job description, that would be a pick-up line. (laughs) Certainly a change of posture and tone now, as soon as she launched into that last little sentence. She now both looks and sounds very confident, yeah? That would be a pick-up line. Now, here's the thing. I do not have a death wish. I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I just looked at a map. See, frontline exploratory science does not happen as much in politically unstable territories. This is a map of all the places which the British Foreign Office have declared contain red zones, orange zones, or have raised some kind of a threat warning about. Okay, a quick note on the visual that she's using here to explain her point. It's a PowerPoint slide, it's the standard world map, and it's got a bunch of countries highlighted predominantly. Uh, It's most of Africa, some Southwest Asia and the Middle East. 
and a couple of countries in the north of South America, which takes a lot to explain, um, which is why she's used a visual, I believe, and it conveys that information so much more quickly. It removes so many words from a presentation. It's quick, it's clear, we can move on. Or have raised some kind of a threat warning about. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that it is a tragedy if we're not doing frontline exploratory science in a huge portion of the planet. And so science, science has a geography problem. Also, as a paleoanthropologist, guys, this is basically a map of some of the most important places in the human journey. There are almost definitely fascinating fossils to be found here. But are we looking for them? And so, as an undergraduate, I was repeatedly told that humans, be they ourselves, Homo sapiens, or earlier species, that we left Africa via the Sinai of Egypt. I'm English, as you can probably tell from my accent,、um, but I'm actually of Arab heritage,、um, and I always say that I'm very, very Arab on the outside. You know, like I'm really, really passionate. I'm like, you're amazing. I love you. But on the inside, I'm really English, so everybody irritates me. <laughs> It's true. And the thing is, my family are Arab from Yemen, and I knew that that channel, Berbel Mendeb, is not that much of a feat to cross. And I kept asking myself this really simple question. If the ancestors to New World monkeys could somehow cross the Atlantic Ocean, why couldn't humans cross that tiny stretch of water? But the thing is, Yemen, compared to, let's say, Europe, was so understudied that it was something akin to near virgin territory. But that, along with its location, made the sheer potential for discovery so exciting. And I had. So many questions. When did we first start using Babel Mendeb? But also, which species of human beside ourselves made it to Yemen? Might we find a species as yet unknown to science? And it turned out I wasn't the only one who had noticed Yemen's potential. There was actually a few other academics out there,、um, but sadly, due to political instability, they moved out, and so I moved in. And I was looking for caves. Caves. Because caves are the original prime real estate, but also because if you're looking for fossils in that kind of heat, your best bet for fossil preservation is always going to be caves. But then, Yemen took a really sad turn for the worse. And just a few days before I was due to fly out to Yemen, the civil war escalated into a regional conflict. The capital's airport was bombed, and Yemen became a no-fly zone. Now, my parents made this decision before I was born that I would be born British. I had nothing to do with the best decision of my life, and now, now the the lucky ones in my family have escaped, and the others, the others are being bombed and send you WhatsApp messages that make you detest your very existence. This war has been going on for four years. It's been going on for over four years, and it has led to a humanitarian crisis. There is a famine there, a man-made famine, 
That's a man-made famine. It's not a natural famine. An entirely man-made famine that the UN has warned could be the worst famine the world has seen in a hundred years. This war has made it clear to me more than ever that no, no place, no people deserve to get left behind. There's a lot of emotion going on here. She's really getting quite emotive. On stage, because I mean, she's got family there, and you know, this it's quite clear why.、Mm. So I feel quite hesitant to criticise this area, but I think I'm getting a little bit confused here about: Are we talking about war and famine, or are we talking about science and exploring caves? I think there's not that clear delineation of the purpose of the talk. Yeah, I think she did a really good job, sort of in about the second minute. Where we'd worked out she was a biological evolutionary biologist, <laughs> yeah, a biological anthropologist, yeah. And she talked about sort of where she wanted to explore, and that was sort of really leaning towards the title of this talk: the places scientists aren't exploring. Because she went into like the caves and、mm. why you would explore caves and everything. Yeah, and then she had all these questions around when was it first used, which species of early humans used it, and that started getting a bit cloudy there for me around what's what's the one question we're trying to answer here. And yeah, now this story—I know what you mean. I can see this is clearly a topic close to her, both in the science aspect and her heritage. But I feel like we haven't gotten into the talk yet, and we're five minutes in.、Mm. It's like we had the introduction, and then we reset the direction.、Mm. Don't get me wrong; it's enjoyable. I like listening to her. Yeah. No place, no people deserve to get left behind. And so I was—I was joining these other teams, and I was forming new collaborations in other unstable places. But I was desperate to get back into Yemen because, for me, Yemen's really personal,、um, and so I kept trying to think of a project I could do in Yemen that would help highlight what was going on there. And every idea I had just kept failing, or it was just too high risk. Because let's be honest, most of Yemen is just too dangerous for a Western team. If I can pretend I haven't seen this talk before and make an assumption,、mm. I reckoned she was going to explore some part of Yemen. Would that be a fair?、Mm. Yeah. Tell me about that. I don't think we need to know about the projects that she tried and failed, and these things happened, and that didn't work. Just what did work? What got us there?、Mm. And maybe give us a bit of you know when we're talking about what did work, a little tiny bit of background around. Hey, we tried to get in with. Seventeen previous projects, and it didn't work because of a regional conflict.、Mm. Most of Yemen is just too dangerous for a Western team. But then I was told that Socotra, a Yemeni island, was safe once you got there. In fact, it turned out there was a few local and international academics that were still working there, and that got me really excited. Because look at Socotra's proximity to Africa. Again, a quick note on the visuals here. She's got a really zoomed-in part of a map. It looks like the very top of Africa that leads into kind of the Middle East, and we're kind of looking at the tip of Somalia and this little island that she's circled, so we know exactly where she's talking about. Yep. Because look at Socotra's proximity to Africa, and yet we had no idea. When humans arrived on that island, but Socotra, to those of you who know it, well, let's just say you probably know it for a completely different reason. 
you probably know it as the Galapagos of the Indian Ocean, because it is one of the most biodiverse places on this earth. Did you know that as the Galapagos of the? No, it's off the coast of Somalia, <laughs> as we saw in the map. So all I was thinking was pirates. Oh, it's like Somalian pirates thing. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, that's just a weird thing that she's come up with is sort of assuming the audience would know that. Like, you may know it as, rather than just saying, this place is known as the Galapagos mm. because of its biodiversity. Just just tell me your information. I... Sometimes when we say, you probably know it as, or everyone knows it as, mm. it can make the audience feel silly because if you yeah. don't know it, it's like, oh, was this really obvious and I should oh, have yeah. known this? Did I miss that class, did I? Mm. Because it is one of the most biodiverse places on this earth. But we were also getting information that this incredibly delicate environment and its people were under threat because they were at the front line of both Middle Eastern politics and climate change. And it slowly dawned on me that Socatra was my Yemen project. And so... I wanted to put together a huge multidisciplinary team. We wanted to cross the archipelago on foot, camel and dow boat to conduct a health check of this place. This has only been attempted once before, and it was in 1999. But the thing is, that is not an easy thing to pull off. Um, and so we desperately needed a recce. And for those of you who aren't familiar with British English, a recce is like a scouting expedition. It's like a reconnaissance. Um, and I often say, that a really big expedition without a recce is a bit like a first date without a Facebook stalk. <laughs> like it's doable, but is it wise? <laughs> There's a few too many knowing laughs in this room, anyway. She's trying to add some humour in here, and it's about the third or fourth joke that she's put in. And I think it's really out of place when she's trying to talk about these wars, these famines, climate change, big expeditions. It's really ruining the emotion that I feel like she's trying to make us feel, which is empathy and suspense and anticipation. And these jokes are just not fitting for me. So, um, so then our recce team, thankfully, were no strangers to unstable places. Which, let's be honest, is kind of important because we were trying to get to a place between Yemen and Somalia. Um, and after calling in what felt like a million favours, including to the deputy governor, we finally found ourselves on the move. Albeit on a um, wooden cement cargo ship sailing through pirate waters in the Indian Ocean. And also, I genuinely discovered that I am genuinely less stressed by pirate waters than I am with a cockroach infestation that was so intense that at one point I went below deck and the floor was black and it was moving. <laughs> yeah, and at night there was, uh, there was three raised platforms to sleep on, but there was only, uh, well, let's say there was 14 members. Um, and the thing is, if, if you've got a raised platform to sleep on, uh, you only have to contend with a few cockroaches during the night. Um, whereas if you got the floor, good luck to you. Um, and so um, I was the only girl in the team and the whole ship. So um, I got away without sleeping on the floor. Uh, and then on like the fourth or fifth night, Martin Edstrom looks at me and goes, Ella, Ella, I really believe in equality. <laughs> yeah. The contrast here doesn't work for me at all. Mm. 
a minute ago, she was getting upset about the worst famine in a hundred years. And now she's worried about some cockroaches. It really makes me question her authenticity about how much she cares about a famine when she's worried about a few bugs. Again, she's trying to be funny. She's trying to bring some humor into it and it's just ruining her credibility for me. Yeah, I think humor can be useful for a purge. Like we go to some sort of deep, heavy topic, famine might work. Uh, And then at the end of that, you sort of have a little bit of humor just to bring people out of it, to continue on with the talk in a little bit more uh, positive energy. But it kind of needs to be on theme and sort of fit in with the talk. Still needs to drive the message forward. Yeah. So um, we were sailing on that cement cargo ship for three days. And then we slowly started seeing land. And after three years of failing, I was finally seeing Yemen. And there is no feeling on Earth like that start of an expedition. It's this moment where you jump out of a jeep or you look up from a boat and you know that there's this possibility, it's small, but it's still there, that you're about to find something that could add to or change our knowledge of who we are and where we come from. There is no feeling like it on Earth. And it's a feeling that so many scientists have. I really like this section. Talking about that unique feeling that she has had. She's clearly passionate, she's sort of slowed down. Uh, I can see in her facial expressions. She believes and she feels this. However, she tries to make me feel it by saying, you, a whole lot in there. You feel this thing, you know the possibility, you, you, you. And it's uniquely an experience she's had. I think I'd really rather if she said, I got off the boat and I could see the islands and I had this intense feeling and I felt these and other scientists share it as well. I actually disagree with that. Okay. Because I think by saying you, that's just how people talk. I don't think it's trying to make you feel it. I don't think it's trying to project it onto you. That's just how people talk. And I'm actually really okay with that. Ah, okay. I guess I just look at it as she's recounting a trip she had. So it comes from yeah. her perspective. Again, that's that's how people talk. Like that's quite natural to me. Okay, cool. Mm. And it's a feeling that so many scientists have but rarely in politically unstable places. Because Western scientists are discouraged or all-out barred from working in unstable places. But here's the thing. Scientists? Scientists specialize in the jungle. Scientists work in deep deep cave systems. Scientists attach themselves to rockets and blow themselves into outer space But apparently, working in an unstable place is deemed too high risk. It is completely arbitrary. Who here in this room wasn't brought up on adventure stories? And most of our heroes were actually scientists and academics. Science was about going out into the unknown. It was about truly global exploration, even if there were risks. And so when did it become acceptable to make it difficult for science to happen in unstable places. And look, I'm not saying that all scientists should go off and start working in unstable places. This isn't some gung-ho call. But here's the thing. For those who have done the research, understand security protocol, and are trained, stop stopping those who want to. Plus, 
that just because one part of a country is an active war zone doesn't mean the whole country is. I'm not saying we should go into active war zones, but Iraqi Kurdistan looks very different from Fallujah. And actually, a few months after、um, I couldn't get into Yemen, another team adopted me. So Professor Graham Barker's team were actually working in Iraqi Kurdistan, and they were digging up Shanadar Cave. Now, Shanadar Cave, a few decades earlier, had unveiled a Neanderthal known as Shanadar One. Now, for a BBC PBS TV series, we actually brought Shanadar One to life, and I want you guys to meet Ned. Ned the Neanderthal. Okay, two things here.、Um, there's a recreation of some sort of early man. Looks like Russell Crowe. <laughs> Can't unsee that now. <laughs> the other thing is we spent this talk battling to get into the island off the coast of Yemen, and it sounds like we got there, and there was a bit of an expedition, and then there was a clunky transition, and we're sort of now talking about a cave in Iraq somewhere.、Mm. Uh, Hang on, what what was with the build for the island in Yemen? If we're going to talk about the discovery that happened in Iraq, again, just fuzzy logic going on here. Ned the Neanderthal. Now here's the coolest thing about Ned. Ned, this guy, you're meeting him before his injuries. See, it turned out that Ned was severely disabled. He was, in fact, so disabled that there is no way that he could have survived without the help of other Neanderthals. And so, this was proof that, at least for this population of Neanderthals, at this time, Neanderthals were like us, and they sometimes looked after those who couldn't look after themselves. But Ned's Ned's an Iraqi Neanderthal. So, what else are we missing? What incredible scientific discoveries are we not making because we're not looking? And by the way, these places—they deserve narratives of hope, and science and exploration can be a part of that.、Um, in fact, I would argue that it can tangibly aid development, and these discoveries become a huge source of local pride. And that brings me to the second reason why science has a geography problem. See. We don't empower local academics, do we? Like it's not lost on me that in my particular field of paleoanthropology, we study human origins, but we have so few diverse scientists. And the thing is, these places are full of students and academics who are desperate to collaborate. And the truth is that for them, they have fewer security issues than us. I think we constantly forget that for them it's not a hostile environment. For them, it's home. I'm, I'm telling you, research done in unstable places with local collaborators can lead to incredible discoveries, and that is what we are hoping upon hope to do in Socotra. They call Socotra the most alien-looking place on earth. And myself, Leon McCarran, Martin Edstrom, and Reese Thwaites Jones could see why. I mean, look at this place. These places—they're not hell holes. They're not write-offs. They're the future front line of science and exploration. Ninety percent of the reptiles on this island, thirty-seven percent of the plant species, exist here and nowhere else on Earth. And that includes this species of dragon's blood tree, which actually bleeds this this red resin. 
And there's something else. People on Socotra, some of them still live in caves, and that is really exciting because it means if a cave is prime real estate this century, maybe it was a few thousand years ago. But we need the data to prove it—the fossils, the stone tools. And so our scouting team have teamed up with other scientists, anthropologists, and storytellers, international as well as local, like Ahmed Al Arqabi, and we are desperate to shed a light on this place before it's too late. And now, now we just somehow need to get back for that really big expedition, because science, science has a geography problem. You guys have been a really lovely audience. Thank you. Okay. So thoughts. You know what I don't question about Ella, and that is she is the right person to talk about this topic.、Mm. Um, you know, she talked about her Ye- Yemeni heritage,、um, her becoming an evolutionary biologist and into anthropology,、um, who's clearly gone to some of these what you call like hostile places and studied the human record that exists there. I have no doubt in my mind she is the right person to talk about this topic. Knows her stuff and would be fascinating to hear more from. Hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. That ending really confused me. She made this big deal about the journey across to Socotra, about the cockroaches, about landing, getting out of the jeep, and then she said at the end, "We need to go to Socotra and explore." Hang on, did you not?、Mm. There was no explanation there. Of did they get called away after some time? Did they do exploration? There was nothing. There was.、Mm. My understanding was she was talked about. They had to do a recce mission there, and it sort of turned out that's all they've done there. I kind of thought. There was going to be a recce, and then maybe a bit of an exploration、mm. afterwards that we would have heard about.、Uh, and I think that's the problem; it wasn't clear at all. So let's ask it. Let's yeah, start with、yeah. our two main questions. What's the one message that you got out of it? Yeah. Because、um, <laughs> to me, it's quite clear. I think this irritates me slightly. Is the message I got is quite different from the title of the talk, which was the fascinating and dangerous places scientists aren't exploring. For me, the message I got out because she said it a few times and had the two points on it was that science has a geography problem. That's exactly what I got. Yeah, and out of context, the sentence "science has a geography problem" doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't stand alone. It's not sort of action-oriented. It doesn't really have an insight. I'm not sure it's the message that should be pulled out of sort of the stories and the experience that she shared with us. So, what should it be? I think in there there were sort of three really nice stories. There was the one about she has a Yemeni heritage and she wanted to get into Yemen because she'd looked at a map and worked out this island was a good place and there was some difficulty getting there. Nice story. The other story was about actually getting there and how they had to have a reconnaissance mission and that things were being discovered there. I think that was its own story. And then there was a third story in there about the. Neanderthal Ned that they found in that Iraqi cave, and that sort of came around the same point where she said that just because one part of a country is in conflict doesn't mean the other the others are not. So I think if we use those three stories, where she's a, a she has Yemeni heritage, it was difficult getting there. They sent a mission to the island, and they're starting to discover things elsewhere in the world in Iraq. They're making these breaking discoveries around Neanderthals being supportive. 
then I think that really leans into the fascinating and dangerous places that scientists aren't exploring. This idea that, yes, there are dangerous and hostile places in the world, but the scientists who do get in there are making discoveries that are advancing human knowledge. I think that fits together so much nicer than kind of what we've just heard. Okay. Okay, you have other thoughts? Yeah, I do. I actually really like the message, science has a geography problem, and then she went into two reasons why and how we can fix it. The first being we need to make these politically unstable places more accessible for scientists. And the second is we need to allow these local scientists access to these areas and to maybe let them do the discovery. So I actually think that science has a geography problem is a really neat message to drive these two points. And the stories were just examples that are used to drive those points. So I actually thought the message was quite neat. I think that's a lesson to be taken from this episode of the podcast is with the collection of stories and facts you have, there's often different directions you can take a talk depending on the message you want to communicate. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Considering you were like relatively happy with what you saw and I would have mm. done a significant restructure there if this was my talk. Do you feel, Kate, that this talk that was 15 minutes long was longer than necessary? Oh God, yes. Yeah? Yeah. There were some really nice, neat stories in there. Yep. And then there was so much superfluous stuff that didn't need to be in there. She tried to force this humour in that just didn't work. I think that while it was really important to her and perhaps important on the world spectrum, the detail about the famine and the war in Yemen didn't add anything. It didn't drive the message. I think it was probably enough to say that it was politically unstable Mm. and maybe there was a war. I think the detail was maybe not needed. I think you're right. It's an important world fact, a horrifying world fact. But the details don't really have a strong place in this particular narrative. Yeah, I think there wasn't enough detail. It was this weird level of not quite high level, not quite a moment in time detailed story. Mm. It was this weird level of talking about something for too long that doesn't actually drive the message at all. I think there was a fair bit of that in the talk of just detail, like you said, that was important to her that just yeah wasn't needed. I think that's certainly how you would pull the time of this story down if you look at either of the two messages that we just talked about and pulling out a lot of that superfluous sentences and Mm. paragraphs really so then the second thing what did we see uh there was some really good stuff and there was some strange stuff that happened that we could see um we mentioned the maps that came up they were really good yeah her visuals were beautiful yeah she was quite animated on stage she stayed sort of within a two-pace radius of where she started which is kind of the ted way Um, But she was good with her facial expressions and even some gestures were thrown in there. Mm -hmm. There was one weird thing. Right at the end there where she was talking about Socotra and how it was a unique place, she had a video running on her PowerPoint. And it was sort of just showing the the landscape and a couple of scientists doing science-y things within that landscape and the beauty of the area, which was great. it was lovely. Yeah, and when I listened to this on the TED Talks podcast, I didn't realise there was a video there. It's only today seeing it that it's there. And it's... A beautiful visual and helps me to see that island. But while I'm sort of concentrating on the scenery and the imagery and that video that's playing on the PowerPoint, I'm trying to listen to her as well. And those two things don't quite match up. And I think you're trying to get your audience to divide their attention between absorbing some beautiful landscape imagery and listen to her talking about, I think she was talking about endemic species and some bits and pieces in there. So I think that just kind of didn't work. They needed their own place. You're asking your audience to multitask there. Exactly. Maybe if that clip was, I don't know how long it ran for, maybe a minute. Maybe if it was just a few seconds of like 
Socotra is quite a unique place. Here's some of the scenery that we were treated to on the reconnaissance mission. Mm. Play it, and then on this island, endemic species, so on and so forth. Yeah, I agree with that. In terms of what I saw, her stance to me was incredibly uncomfortable. Oh, right. She leaned back and kind of balanced on one foot at a time. And I spent so much of the time thinking, are you going to stumble? Are you going to fall over? (laughs) Oh, no. And it made me feel really uncomfortable. Right. And I'm really loath to say this, but I feel like it actually damaged her credibility a bit because it came off a little bit... I don't want to use this word, but I don't have a better one. Almost ditzy. Unsure, uncomfortable. Unconfident, unsure, uncomfortable, unconfident. I don't know. Okay. Unstable on her footing unstable. kind of reflects that maybe she's a bit... Unst- unstable of knowledge. Mm. Oh, I don't know. But she's not. She's so clearly oh, yeah. so competent. Yes. So I'm really loath to say that, but it's just a feeling that I got. And I just wanted to say, I just stand there. Just put your feet on the ground. <laughs> Yeah, but otherwise, I mean, she's neat, tidy, Mm. but it was just that stance that was just a little bit distracting for me. I think overall, like we talked about, she is absolutely the right person to talk about this topic. I have the question, would you like to, and not necessarily in a TED speech, but maybe just a conversation, would you like to hear more from Ella about this experience? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I feel like there's so much left that she could talk about that I would like to hear her expand on. Yeah. I feel like we've hated on it a little bit, but... I think mostly because we can see so much potential here. Yes, yes. It is so interesting and there's so much there, but I think that's the problem. I just want one bit of interesting. Mm. I want to dive deep into Mm. one thing. Kind of just the execution of getting this content together just missed us a little bit. I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. certainly interesting topic. I I too would love to hear more. This was Ella Al-Shamahi. The fascinating and dangerous places scientists aren't exploring. Hope you enjoyed listening to the talk as well. As always, there's a link down in the show notes if you want to to see what she did, including the, the video and some of those beautiful visuals that she had. And that's us for this week. Thanks for listening to today's show. Head to presentationboss.com.au slash podcast where you'll find the show notes for this episode, all other episodes and other free resources. If you've seen a speech you'd like us to break down on the show, Click us the link at podcast at presentationboss.com.au. Most importantly, we rely on you to share the information in this podcast. If you found value in today's episode, please recommend us to a friend. Or we'd love for you to give us a review on iTunes. It helps more people find us. Have a great week.